Chapter Seventeen of A Voyage to Arcturus by David Lindsay. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Voyage to Arcturus, Chapter Seventeen, Corpang. Maskell did not awaken till long after Bloodsomber. Lee Halfe was standing by his side, looking down at him. It was doubtful whether A had slept at all. "'What time is it?' Maskell asked, rubbing his eyes and sitting up. "'The day is passing,' was the vague reply. Maskell got onto his feet and gazed up at the cliff. "'Now I'm going to climb that. No need for both of us to risk our necks, so you wait here, and if I find anything on top, I'll call you.' Aelfeyan glanced up at him strangely. There's nothing up there except a bare hillside. I've been there often. Have you anything special in mind? Heights often bring me inspiration. Sit down and wait." Refreshed by his sleep, Maskell immediately attacked the face of the cliff, and took the first twenty feet at a single rush. Then it grew precipitous, and the ascent demanded greater circumspection and intelligence. There were few hand or footholds. He had to reflect before every step. On the other hand, it was sound rock, and he was no novice at the sport. Branspell glared full on the wall, so that it half blinded him with its glittering whiteness. After many doubts and pauses, he drew near the top. He was hot, sweating copiously, and rather dizzy. To reach a ledge, he caught hold of two projecting rocks, one with each hand, at the same time scrambling upward, legs between the rocks. The left-hand rock, which was the larger of the two, became dislodged by his weight, and flying like a huge dark shadow past his head, crashed down with a terrifying sound to the foot of the precipice, followed by an avalanche of smaller stones. Maskell steadied himself as well as he could, but it was some moments before he dared to look down behind him. At first he could not distinguish Lee Then he caught sight of his legs and hindquarters a few feet up the cliff from the bottom. He perceived that the Fan had air head in a cavity, and was scrutinizing something and waited for air to reappear. A emerged, looked up to Maskell, and called out in air horn-like voice, "'The entrance is here!' "'I'm coming down!' roared Maskell. "'Wait for me!' He descended swiftly, without taking too much care, for he thought he recognized his luck in this discovery, and within twenty minutes was standing beside the fan. What happened? The rock you dislodged struck this other rock just above the spring. It tore out of its bed. See, now there's room for us to get in. Don't get excited, said Maskell. It's a remarkable accident, but we have plenty of time. Let me look." He peered into the hole, which was large enough to admit a big man without stooping. Contrasted with the daylight outside it was dark, yet a peculiar glow pervaded the place, and he could see well enough. A rock tunnel went straight forward into the bowels of the hill, out of sight. The valley brook did not flow along the floor of this tunnel as he had expected, but came up as a spring just inside the entrance. Well, Lee Halfay, 
Not much need to deliberate, eh? Still, observe that your stream parts company with us here." As he turned around for an answer, he noticed that his companion was trembling from head to foot. "'Why, what's the matter?' Lihalfe pressed a hand to Earhart. "'The stream leaves us, but what makes the stream what it is continues with us. Fasini is there.' "'But surely you don't expect to see him in person. Why are you shaking?' Perhaps it will be too much for me after all. Why? How is it affecting you? The Fayan took him by the shoulder and held him at arm's length, endeavoring to study him with air unsteady eyes. Fasini's thoughts are obscure. I am his lover, you are a lover of women, yet he grants to you what he denies to me. What does he grant to me? to see him and go on living. I shall die, but it's immaterial. Tomorrow both of us will be dead." Maskell impatiently shook himself free. "'Your sensations may be reliable in your own case, but how do you know I shall die?' "'Life is flaming up inside you,' replied Lihalfe, shaking airhead. "'But after it has reached its climax, perhaps to-night, it will sink rapidly, and you'll die tomorrow. As for me, if I enter Thrill, I shan't come out again. A smell of death is being wafted to me out of this hole. You talk like a frightened man. I smell nothing. I am not frightened, said Lee Halfe quietly. A had been gradually recovering air tranquillity. But when one has lived as long as I have, it is a serious matter to die. Every year one puts out new roots." "'Decide what you're going to do,' said Maskell with a touch of contempt, "'for I'm going in at once.' The Thayan gave an odd, meditative stare down the ravine, and after that walked into the cavern without another word. Maskell, scratching his head, followed close at air heels. The moment they stepped across the bubbling spring, the atmosphere altered. Without becoming stale or unpleasant, it grew cold, clear, and refined, and somehow suggested austere and tomb-like thoughts. The daylight disappeared at the first bend in the tunnel. After that, Masco could not say where the light came from. The air itself must have been luminous, for though it was as light as full moon on earth, neither he nor Lee Halfe cast a shadow. Another peculiarity of the light was that both the walls of the tunnel and their own bodies appeared colorless. Everything was black and white, like a lunar landscape. This intensified the solemn, funereal feelings created by the atmosphere. After they had proceeded for about ten minutes, the tunnel began to widen out. The roof was high above their heads, and six men could have walked side by side. Lee Halfe was visibly weakening. A dragged herself along slowly and painfully with sunken head. Maskell caught hold of air. "'You can't go on like that. Better let me take you back.' The Fayan smiled and staggered. I'm dying. Don't talk like that. It's only a passing indisposition. 
Let me take you back to the daylight. No, help me forward. I wish to see Fasini. The sick must have their way, said Maskell. Lifting air bodily in his arms, he walked quickly along for another hundred yards or so. They then emerged from the tunnel and faced a world the parallel of which he had never set eyes upon before. Set, set me down, directed Lee feebly. Here I'll die. Maskell obeyed and laid Air down at full length on the rocky ground. The Fane raised herself with difficulty on one arm and stared with fast glazing eyes at the mystic landscape. Maskell looked too, and what he saw was a vast undulating plain, lighted as if by the moon, but there was of course no moon and there were no shadows. He made out running streams in the distance. Beside them were trees of a peculiar kind. They were rooted in the ground, but the branches also were aerial roots, and there were no leaves. No other plants could be seen. The soil was soft, porous rock, resembling pumice. Beyond a mile or two in any direction the light merged into obscurity. At their back a great rocky wall extended on either hand. But it was not square like a wall, but full of bays and promontories, like an indented line of sea-cliffs. The roof of this huge underworld was out of sight. Here and there a mighty shaft of naked rock, fantastically weathered, towered aloft into the gloom, doubtless serving to support the roof. There were no colors. Every detail of the landscape was black, white, or gray. The scene appeared so still, so solemn and religious, that all his feelings quieted down to absolute tranquillity. Lee fell back suddenly. Maskell dropped on his knees and helplessly watched the last flickerings of air spirit going out like a candle in foul air. Death came. He closed the eyes. The awful grin of Crystalman immediately fastened upon the Fane's dead features. While Maskell was still kneeling, he became conscious of someone standing beside him. He looked up quickly and saw a man, but did not at once rise. "'Another Fane dead,' said the newcomer in a grave, toneless, and intellectual voice. Maskell got up. The man was short and thick-set, but emaciated. His forehead was not disfigured by any organs. He was middle-aged. The features were energetic and rather coarse, yet it seemed to Maskell as though a pure, hard life had done something toward refining them. His sanguine eyes carried a twisted, puzzled look. Some unanswerable problem was apparently in the forefront of his brain. His face was hairless. The hair of his head was short and manly. His brow was wide. He was clothed in a black, sleeveless robe, and bore a long staff in his hand. There was an air of cleanness and austerity about the whole man that was attractive. He went on speaking dispassionately to Maskell, and while doing so, kept passing his hand reflectively over his cheeks and chin. They all find their way here to die. They come here for matter-play. There they live to an incredible age. 
partly on that account, and partly because of their spontaneous origin, they regard themselves as the favored children of Fasini. But when they come here to find him, they die at once. I think this one is the last of the race. But whom do I speak to? I am Korpang. Who are you, and where do you come from, and what are you doing here? My name is Maskell. My home is on the other side of the universe. As for what I am doing here, I accompanied the Halfe, that fane, for matter-play. But a man doesn't accompany a fane out of friendship. What do you want in Thriel? Then this is Thriel? Yes. Maskell remained silent. Korpang studied his face with rough, curious eyes. Are you ignorant or merely reticent, Maskell? I came here to ask questions and not to answer them. The stillness of the place was almost oppressive. Not a breeze stirred, and not a sound came through the air. Their voices had been lowered, as though they were in a cathedral. Then do you want my society or not? asked Korpang. Yes, if you can fit in with my mood, which is not to talk about myself. But you must at least tell me where you want to go to. I want to see what it is to be seen here, then go on to Litstorm. I can guide you through, if that's all you want. Come, let us start. First, let's do our duty and bury the dead, if possible. Turn around, directed Korpang. Maskell looked around quickly. The Halfay's body had disappeared. What does this mean? What has happened? The body has returned to whence it came. There was nowhere here for it to be, so it has vanished. No burial will be required. Was the fane an illusion, then? In no sense. Well, explain quickly, then, what has taken place. I seem to be going mad. There's nothing unintelligible in it, if you'll only listen calmly. The fane belonged, body and soul, to the outside, visible world, to Fasini. This underworld is not Fasini's world, but Thyre's, and Fasini's creatures cannot breathe its atmosphere. And this applies not only to whole bodies, but even to the last particles of bodies the fane has dissolved into nothingness. But don't you and I belong to the outside world, too? We belong to all three worlds. What three worlds? What do you mean? There are three worlds, said Korpang composedly. The first is Fasini's, the second is Amphuse's, the third is Thyre's. From him Thriel gets its name. But this is mere nomenclature. In what sense are there three worlds? Korpang passed his hand over his forehead. All this we can discuss as we go along. It's a torment to me to be standing still. Maskell stared again at the spot where Lee Halfay's body had lain, quite bewildered at the extraordinary disappearance. He could scarcely tear himself away from the place, so mysterious was it. 
Not until Corpang called to him a second time did he make up his mind to follow him. They set off from the rock wall, straight across the air-lit plain, directing their course toward the nearest trees. The subdued light, the absence of shadows, the massive shafts, springing gray-white out of the jet-like ground, the fantastic trees, the absence of a sky, the deathly silence, the knowledge that he was underground. The combination of all these things predisposed Maskell's mind to mysticism, and he prepared himself with some anxiety to hear Corpang's explanation of the land and its wonders. He already began to grasp that the reality of the outside world and the reality of this world were two quite different things. "'In what sense are there three worlds?' he demanded, repeating his former question. Corpank smote the end of his staff on the ground. First of all, Maskell, what is your motive for asking? If it's mere intellectual curiosity, tell me, for we mustn't play with awful matters. No, it isn't that, said Maskell slowly. I'm not a student. My journey is no holiday tour. Is there blood on your soul? asked Corpang, eyeing him intently. The blood rose steadily to Maskell's face, but in that light it caused it to appear black. Unfortunately, there is, and not a little. The other's face was all wrinkles, but he made no comment. And so you see, went on Maskell with a short laugh, I'm in the very best condition for receiving your instruction. Corpang still paused. "'Underneath your crimes I see a man,' he said after a few minutes. "'On that account, and because we are commanded to help one another, I won't leave you at present, though I little thought to be walking with a murderer. Now, to your question. Whatever a man sees with his eyes, Maskell, he sees in three ways. Length, breadth, depth. Length is existence. Breadth is relation. Depth is feeling. Something of the sort was told me by Earthred, the musician, who came from Thriel. I don't know him. What else did he tell you? He went on to apply it to music. Continue, and pardon the interruption. These three states of perception are the three worlds. Existence is Fasini's world. Relation is Amphuse's world. Feeling is Thyre's world. "'Can't we come down to hard facts?' said Maskell, frowning. "'I understand no more than I did before what you mean by three worlds.' "'There are no harder facts than the ones I am giving you. The first world is visible, tangible nature. It was created by Fasini out of nothingness.' and therefore we call it existence. That I understand. The second world is love, by which I don't mean lust. Without love every individual would be entirely self-centered, and unable deliberately to act on others. Without love there would be no sympathy, not even hatred, anger, or revenge would be possible. These are all imperfect and distorted forms of pure love. Interpenetrating Fasni's world of nature, therefore, 
we have Amphuse's world of love or relation. What grounds have you for assuming that this so-called second world is not contained in the first? They are contradictory. A natural man lives for himself. A lover lives for others. It may be so. It's rather mystical. But go on. Who is Thyre? Length and breadth together without depth give flatness. Life and love without feeling produce shallow, superficial natures. Feeling is the need of men to stretch out toward their Creator. You mean prayer and worship? I mean intimacy with Thyre. This feeling is not to be found in either the first or second world. Therefore it is a third world. Just as depth is the line between object and subject, feeling is the line between Thyre and man. But what is Thyre himself? Thyre is the afterworld. I still don't understand, said Maskell. Do you believe in three separate gods? Or are these merely three ways of regarding one god? There are three gods, for they are mutually antagonistic. Yet they are somehow united. Maskell reflected a while. How have you arrived at these conclusions? None other are possible in Thriel, Maskell. Why in Thriel? What is there peculiar here? I will show you presently." They walked on for above a mile in silence, while Maskell digested what had been said. When they came to the first trees, which grew along the banks of a small stream of transparent water, Korpang halted. "'That bandage around your forehead has long been unnecessary,' he remarked. Maskell removed it. He found that the line of his brow was smooth and uninterrupted as it had never yet been since his arrival in Tormance. "'How has this come about, and how did you know it?' "'They were Fasini's organs. They have vanished, just as the Feyan's body vanished.' Maskell kept rubbing his forehead. "'I feel more human without them. But why isn't the rest of my body affected?' because its living will contains the element of Thyre. Why are we stopping here?" Korpang broke off the tip of one of the aerial roots of a tree and proffered it to him. "'Eat this, Maskell. For food or something else. Food for body and soul.' Maskell bit into the root. It was white and hard. Its white sap was bleeding. It had no taste, but after eating it he experienced a change of perception. The landscape, without alteration of light or outline, became several degrees more stern and sacred. When he looked at Korpang he was impressed by his aspect of Gothic awfulness, but the perplexed expression was still in his eyes. "'Do you spend all your time here, Korpang?' "'Occasionally I go above but not often. What fastens you to this gloomy world? The search for Thyre. Then it's still a search? Let us walk on." 
As they resumed their journey across the dim, gradually rising plain, the conversation became even more earnest in character than before. "'Although I was not born here,' proceeded Corpang, "'I have lived here for twenty-five years, and during all that time I have been drawing nearer to Thyre as I hope. But there is this peculiarity about it. The first stages are richer in fruit and more promising than the later ones. The longer a man seeks Thyre, the more he seems to absent himself. In the beginning he is felt and known, sometimes as a shape, sometimes as a voice, sometimes an overpowering emotion. Later on all is dry, dark, and harsh in the soul. Then you would think that Thyre was a million miles off. How do you explain that? When everything is darkest, he may be nearest, Maskell. But this is troubling you? My days are spent in torture. You still persist, though. This day-darkness can't be the ultimate state. My questions will be answered." A silence ensued. "'What do you propose to show me?' asked Maskell. "'The land is about to grow wilder. I am taking you to the three figures, which were carved and erected by an earlier race of men. There we will pray.' And what then? If you are true-hearted, you will see things you will not easily forget." They had been walking slightly uphill in a sort of trough between two parallel, gently sloping downs. The trough now deepened, while the hills on either side grew steeper. They were in an ascending valley, and as it curved this way and that, the landscape was shut off from view. They came to a little spring, bubbling up from the ground. It formed a trickling brook, which was unlike all other brooks in that it was flowing up the valley instead of down. Before long it was joined by other miniature rivulets, so that in the end it became a fair-sized stream. Masco kept looking at it and puckering his forehead. Nature has other laws here, it seems. Nothing can exist here that is not a compound of the three worlds. Yet the water is flowing somewhere. I can't explain it, but there are three wills in it. Is there no such thing as pure thyre matter? Thyre cannot exist without amphuse, and amphuse cannot exist without fascine. Maskell thought this over for some minutes. That must be so he said at last. Without life there can be no love, and without love there can be no religious feeling. In the half-light of the land the tops of the hills containing the valley presently attained such a height that they could not be seen. The sides were steep and craggy, while the bed of the valley grew narrower at every step. Not a living organism was visible. All was unnatural and sepulchral. Maskell said, I feel as if I were dead and walking in another world. I still do not know what you are doing here, answered Corpang. Why should I go on making a mystery of it? I came to find Surtur. That name I've heard, but under what circumstances? You forget? 
Corpang walked along, his eyes fixed on the ground, obviously troubled. Who is Surtur? Maskell shook his head and said nothing. The valley shortly afterward narrowed, so that the two men, touching fingertips in the middle, could have placed their free hands on the rock walls on either side. It threatened to terminate in a cul-de-sac. But just when the road seemed least promising and they were shut in by cliffs on all sides, a hitherto unperceived bend brought them suddenly into the open. They emerged through a mere crack in the line of precipices. A sort of huge natural corridor was running along at right angles to the way they had come, both ends faded into obscurity after a few hundred yards. Right down the center of this corridor ran a chasm with perpendicular sides. Its width varied from thirty to a hundred feet, but its bottom could not be seen. On both sides of the chasm, facing one another, were platforms of rock, twenty feet or so in width. They too proceeded in both directions out of sight. Maskell and Corpang emerged onto one of these platforms. The shelf opposite was a few feet higher than that on which they stood. The platforms were backed by a double line of lofty and unclimbable cliffs, whose tops were invisible. The stream, which had accompanied them through the gap, went straight forward, but instead of descending the wall of the chasm as a waterfall, it crossed from side to side like a liquid bridge. It then disappeared through a cleft in the cliffs on the opposite side. To Maskell's mind, however, even more wonderful than this unnatural phenomenon was the absence of shadows, which was more noticeable here than on the open plain. It made the place look like a hall of phantoms. Corpang, without delay, led the way along the shelf to the left. When they had walked about a mile, the gulf widened to two hundred feet. Three large rocks loomed up on the ledge opposite. They resembled three upright giants, standing motionless side by side on the extreme edge of the chasm. Corpang and Maskell drew nearer, and then Maskell saw that they were statues. Each was about thirty feet high, and the workmanship was of the rudest. They represented naked men, but the limbs and trunks had been barely chipped into shape. The faces alone had had care bestowed on them and even these faces were merely generalized. It was obviously the work of primitive artists. The statues stood erect with knees closed and arms hanging straight down on their sides. All three were exactly alike. As soon as they were directly opposite, Corpang halted. "'Is this a representation of your three beings?' asked Maskell, awed by the spectacle in spite of his constitutional audacity. "'Ask no questions, but kneel,' replied Corpang. He dropped onto his own knees, but Maskell remained standing. Corpang covered his eyes with one hand and prayed silently. After a few minutes the light sensibly faded. Then Maskell knelt as well, but he continued looking. It grew darker and darker, until all was like the blackest night. Sight and sound no longer existed. He was alone with his own spirit. Then one of the three colossi came slowly into sight again. But it had ceased to be a statue. It was a living person. 
out of the blackness of space a giant head and chest emerged, illuminated by a mystic rosy glow, like a mountain peak bathed by the rising sun. As the light grew stronger, Maskell saw that the flesh was translucent and that the glow came from within. The limbs of the apparition were wreathed in mist. Before long the features of the face stood out distinctly. It was that of a beardless youth of twenty years. It possessed the beauty of a girl and the daring force of a man. It bore a mocking, cryptic smile. Maskell felt the fresh, mysterious thrill of mingled pain and rapture of one who awakes from a deep sleep in midwinter and sees the gleaming, dark, delicate colors of the half-dawn. The vision smiled, kept still, and looked beyond him. He began to shudder, with delight and many emotions. As he gazed, his poetic sensibility acquired such a nervous and indefinable character that he could endure it no more. He burst into tears. When he looked up again the image had nearly disappeared, and in a few moments more he was plunged back into total darkness. Shortly afterward a second statue reappeared. It too was transfigured into a living form, but Maskell was unable to see the details of its face and body, because of the brightness of the light that radiated from them. This light, which started as pale gold, ended as flaming golden fire. It illumined the whole underground landscape. The rock ledges, the cliffs, himself and Korpang on their knees, the two unlighted statues, all appeared as if in sunlight, and the shadows were black and strongly defined. The light carried heat with it, but a singular heat. Maskell was unaware of any rise in temperature, but he felt his heart melting to womanish softness. His male arrogance and egotism faded imperceptibly away. His personality seemed to disappear. What was left behind was not a freedom of spirit or light-heartedness, but a passionate and nearly savage mental state of pity and distress. He felt a tormenting desire to serve. All this came from the heat of the statue, and was without an object. He glanced anxiously around him, and fastened his eyes on Korpang. He put a hand on his shoulder and aroused him from his praying. You must know what I am feeling, Korpang." Korpang smiled sweetly, but said nothing. "'I care nothing for my own affairs any more. How can I help you?' "'So much the better for you, Maskell, if you respond so quickly to the invisible worlds.' As soon as he had spoken the figure began to vanish, and the light to die away from the landscape. Maskell's emotion slowly subsided, but it was not until he was once more in complete darkness that he became master of himself again. Then he felt ashamed of his boyish exhibition of enthusiasm, and thought ruefully that there must be something wanting in his character. He got up onto his feet. The very moment that he arose a man's voice sounded, not a yard from his ear. It was hardly raised above a whisper, but he could distinguish that it was not Korpang's. As he listened he was unable to prevent himself from physically trembling. 
Maskell, you are to die," said the unseen speaker. "'Who is speaking?' "'You have only a few hours of life left. Don't trifle the time away.' Maskell could bring nothing out. "'You have despised life,' went on the low-toned voice. Do you really imagine that this mighty world has no meaning and that life is a joke? What must I do? Repent your murders, commit no fresh ones, pay honor to— The voice died away. Maskell waited in silence for it to speak again. All remained still, however, and the speaker appeared to have taken his departure. Supernatural horror seized him he fell into a sort of catalepsy. At that moment he saw one of the statues fading away, from a pale white glow to darkness. He had not previously seen it shining. In a few more minutes the normal light of the land returned. Corpan got up and shook him out of his trance. Maskell looked around but saw no third person. Whose statue was the last? he demanded. Did you hear me speaking? I heard your voice, but no one else's. I've just had my death foretold, so I suppose I have not long to live. Lihalfe prophesied the same thing. Corpang shook his head. What value do you set on life? he asked. Very little, but it's a fearful thing all the same. Your death is? No, but this warning." They stopped talking. A profound silence reigned. Neither of the two men seemed to know what to do next, or where to go. Then both of them heard the sound of drumming. It was slow, emphatic, and impressive, a long way off and not loud, but against the background of quietness very marked. It appeared to come from some point out of sight to the left of where they were standing, but on the same rock-shelf. Maskell's heart beat quickly. "'What can that sound be?' asked Corpang, peering into the obscurity. "'It is Surtur.' "'Once again, who is Surtur?' Maskell clutched his arm and pressed him into silence. A strange radiance was in the air, in the direction of the drumming. It increased in intensity, and gradually occupied the whole scene. Things were no longer seen by Thyre's light, but by this new light. It cast no shadows. Corpang's nostrils swelled, and he held himself more proudly. What fire is that? It is muspel light. They both glanced instinctively at the three statues. In the strange glow they had undergone a change. The face of each figure was clothed in the sordid and horrible Crystalman mask. Corpang cried out and put his hand over his eyes. "'What can this mean?' he asked a minute later. "'It must mean that life is wrong, and the creator of life, too, whether he is one person or three. Corpang looked again, like a man trying to accustom himself to a shocking sight. "'Dare we believe this?' "'You must,' replied Maskell. "'You have always served the highest, 
and you must continue to do so. It has simply turned out that Thyre is not the highest." Corpang's face became swollen with a kind of coarse anger. "'Life is clearly false. I have been seeking Thyre for a lifetime, and now I find this.' "'You have nothing to reproach yourself with. Crystalman has had eternity to practice his cunning in, so it's no wonder if a man can't see straight, even with the best intentions. What have you decided to do? The drumming seems to be moving away. Will you follow it, Maskell? Yes. But where will it take us? Perhaps out of Thriel altogether. It sounds to me more real than reality said Corpang. Tell me, who is Surtur? Surtur's world, or Muspel, we are told, is the original of this world, which is a distorted copy. Crystalman is life, but Surtur is other than life. How do you know this? It has sprung together somehow, from inspiration, from experience, from conversation with the wise men of your planet. Every hour it grows truer for me and takes a more definite shape." Corpang stood up squarely, facing the three figures with a harsh, energetic countenance, stamped all over with resolution. "'I believe you, Maskell. No better proof is required than that. Thyre is not the highest. He is even in a certain sense the lowest. Nothing but the thoroughly false and base could stoop to such deceits. I am coming with you, but don't play the traitor. These signs may be for you, and not for me at all, and if you leave me... I make no promises. I don't ask you to come with me. If you prefer to stay in your little world, or if you have any doubts about it, you had better not come. Don't talk like that. I shall never forget your service to me. Let us make haste, or we shall lose the sound." Corpang started off more eagerly than Maskell. They walked fast in the direction of the drumming. For upward of two miles the path they went along the ledge without any change of level. The mysterious radiance gradually departed, and was replaced by the normal light of Thriel. The rhythmical beats continued, but a very long way ahead neither was able to diminish the distance. "'What kind of man are you?' Corpang suddenly broke out. "'In what respect?' "'How do you come to be on such terms with the invisible? How is it that I've never had this experience before I met you, in spite of my never-ending prayers and mortifications? In what way are you superior to me?' To hear voices, perhaps, can't be made a profession," replied Maskell. I have a simple and unoccupied mind. That may be why I sometimes hear things that up to the present you have not been able to." Corpang darkened and kept silent, and then Maskell saw through to his pride. The ledge presently began to rise. They were high above the platform on the opposite side of the gulf. The road then curved sharply to the right, and they passed over the abyss and the other ledge as by a bridge, coming out upon the top of the opposite cliffs. A new line of precipices immediately confronted them. 
They followed the drumming along the base of these heights, but as they were passing the mouth of a large cave, the sound came from its recesses, and they turned their steps inward. "'This leads to the outer world,' remarked Corpang. "'I've occasionally been there by this passage.' "'Then that's where it is taking us, no doubt. I confess I shan't be sorry to see sunlight once more.' "'Can you find time to think of sunlight?' asked Corpang with a rough smile. "'I love the sun, and perhaps I'm rather lacking in the spirit of a zealot. Yet, for all that, you may get there before me.' "'Don't be bitter,' said Maskell. "'I'll tell you another thing. Muspel can't be willed, for the simple reason that Muspel does not concern the will. To will is a property of this world.' Then what is your journey for? It's one thing to walk to a destination and to linger over the walk, and quite another to run there at top speed. Perhaps I'm not so easily deceived as you think, said Corpang with another smile. The light persisted in the cave, the path narrowed and became a steep ascent. Then the angle became one of forty-five degrees and they had to climb. The tunnel grew so confined that Maskell was reminded of the confined dreams of his childhood. Not long afterward daylight appeared. They hastened to complete the last stage. Maskell rushed out first into the world of colors, and, all dirty and bleeding from numerous scratches, stood blinking on a hillside, bathed in the brilliant late afternoon sunshine. Corpang followed closely at his heels. He was obliged to shield his eyes with his hands for a few minutes, so unaccustomed was he to Branch Spell's blinding rays. "'The drumbeats have stopped!' he exclaimed suddenly. "'You can't expect music all the time,' answered Maskell dryly. "'We mustn't be luxurious.' "'But now we have no guide. We're no better off than before.' Well, Tormance is a big place. But I have an infallible rule, Corpang. As I come from the south, I always go due north." "'That will take us to Lichstorm.' Maskell gazed at the fantastically piled rocks all around them. "'I saw these rocks from Matterplay. The mountains look as far off now as they did then, and there's not much of the day left. How far is Lichstorm from here?" Corpang looked away to the distant range. "'I don't know. But unless a miracle happens, we shan't get there tonight.' "'I have a feeling,' said Maskell, "'that we shall not only get there tonight, but that tonight will be the most important in my life.' And he sat down passively to rest. End of chapter 17